Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. What a wonderful feeling I'm having right now. <laughs> Seeing uh, some old friends and some new faces. Virtual and in the studio. <laughs> For me, this is uh, this feels like kind of day one because the well, for a very long time on Monday mornings when I was leading service for the last little while, it was empty. I mean, it was just darkness and, and emptiness of the literal kind. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight we have the reopening celebration. This is my first Sunday back where talking is happening and service is happening and all the things that make this practice, um, all the special kind of qualities that are particular to this practice are here this morning for the first time for me in a very long time. So it's I'm kind of experiencing a little bit of a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of odd, like there's a big picture of me right in front of me, so I'm probably <laughs> look anywhere but straight ahead. <laughs> So welcome everyone. It's really delightful to see everyone. In thinking of what I'd like to offer, I remember some teacher from across the years admitting that really what we're, we're all saying the same thing over and over and over again. And all these Dharma talks are really the best attempt that the person who's speaking can make to try to impact someone in a way that they could take in. So it's all these fumbling attempts at, at how can I say it this way that maybe it'll, it'll lame, but at all times we're trying to kind of, I think, get at the most important thing. Because our time is so precious and so fleeting, It doesn't make sense to, in some ways, to not talk about the most important thing. But how can we say the most important thing in ways that land? Because we can't give the same talk over and over again. So I thought I'd start with a little bit of a confession, which is that, that in a in the days of leading service here at Apamata, when it's a odd numbered day, we chant the Heart Sutra, 
that is the traditional translation that I think is offered the same way, I think, across all most Zen centers. And then there's a new translation by Joan Halifax and Kazuki Tanahashi that we read on the even numbered days. And I found over the weeks that subconsciously and then later quite consciously, I would always hope it was an even numbered day. <laughs> so, so there's something about the odd numbered day translation, the original one, which I realized I had some resistance to. Or to put it a little more simply, that I didn't like. I thought, huh, well, what, what, what is it about the Heart Sutra that I don't like, given that it's such a core teaching? And so I thought about it a little bit, and I, it's not that this is the one answer, but the shorthand for what I recognize in myself is when we get to the lines that read, therefore, given the emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of mind consciousness. There's a whole bunch of no's. And I realize I don't like that. Especially on a Monday morning at whatever time it is. <laughs> the first thing we're chanting is a whole bunch of no's, no, no eyes, no ears. I want to pause just for one second and check in with you all. What, to ask, when you hear those lines, and I imagine as, a, as, as someone in this tradition, you've heard them probably many, many times. I'm curious what you experience. And I want to be very clear about this. I'm not asking you at this moment what you think they mean. I'm asking you when you hear all this stuff about no eyes, no tongue, no mind, what happens to you internally? What emotional qualities arise? What feelings might you get? Are there sensations that you experience? Yeah, I feel uh, I, I'm seeing then juicery over there, and he's cutting me off, cutting off these delusions that I've had all my life, uh, taking away from me something um, that I believe in. So, uh, I, with all my experience, with all my life, that I have an eye right here. What do you mean? So it's uh, telling you that you don't exist. 
Well, let's not get into the meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you feel some relief. Oh no, no! I feel oh. I feel like someone's taking something from me. Oh, that's, something that's away. very, very precious to me. Oh, I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, that the stuff is not that I believed in all my life. It's not real. Chris, first of all, thank you for articulating something that I felt on even in odd number days and really didn't know what to do or how to process it. Um, every word you said up, up until last week resonated so deeply with me. And what I feel on odd number days is a shutdown. And what I feel on even number days is an opening and a freedom and peace. And I haven't narrowed it to the phrases or the words, but there is something about the second of the two that invites my Buddha nature to open. And that's, that's so, I'm sorry, is there not the negation in the in the Tamakoshi Halifax version as well? So I'm going to get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'll just say, I. I like you, I kind of shut down. I think, well, okay, whatever. I, I, I couldn't hear this if I didn't have any ears. You know, that's what I think. But I think, okay, well, I'm going to go with it. I've always found it funny, honestly. When I, when I read it, it's like, it's just hammering home the point. There's no eyes, no ears, no nose. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah. Going down the list, I just always have a little bit of a, a smile about it when I'm reading it. Right. See, that's that's kind of the, the humorous response, I think, is also a little similar to what I have with a more curmudgeonly take, because I immediately think I do have eyes, mm-hmm. and I do have a, a nose, and you're telling me I don't, so that's, <laughs> that's kind of funny. I think, can I... Yes, Maria. Um, Yeah, I think for me, when I hear those words, it always takes me into a place of stop. Like you said about just just kind of a resting, a stopping, a kind of all the interpretations that I'm doing in the world. It's kind of like, ah, I can just stop and I can just be here and I can be present and welcome the the space more openly in front of me i just feel like a bigger space more spacious more open and a kind of a yes i'm i'm here i've arrived again you know like you know we come back again and again and again it's like that ah it's a reminder I'm back again thank you Is there anyone else that'd like to say uh, something about their feeling when they hear they have no eyes and no thumb and no nose? Um, yeah, um, I think confused um, because um, I don't know what to do with it, kind of. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> In, in as much as I, I was open to any answer, I was hoping to hear that. <laughs> so thank you for delivering, <laughs> delivering the goods. Uh, I do think it's confusing. 
like I was saying, when we have eyes and a mouth and a nose, it's uh, it's at the very least auto confusing to me to hear the core teaching in our tradition say we don't have an eyes and ears and a nose at the base level. So, as I promised Joel, I would read the the even numbered day translation of that particular phrase, which goes as follows. It says, boundlessness is not limited by form. I'm sorry, let me interrupt myself. Kim, on the screen, the dialogue keeps popping up, whether I'd like to join the audio or later. No, don't. So later? Later. So the modern translation says, boundlessness is not limited by form, nor by feelings, perceptions, inclinations, or discernment. It, meaning boundlessness, is free of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind free of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and any object of mind, free of sensory realms, including the realm of the mind. So the core that feels different to me is the particular phrase that says, boundlessness is free of, and then the list. So that to me feels a little different than saying you don't have eyes and you don't have ears. So let's leave. So that's why I like the even number of days better. <laughs> <clears throat> but in going through this process and thinking about this stuff, I found that now I'm able to go back to the odd number of days because now I think I get what the odd number of days of the no are actually saying it's just it's 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 a it's a journey it took a journey and so one of the way one of the things that happened uh during this long covid journey is that i kept up my quantum physics reading habit so some of you who know me know that I fell into this unfortunate habit, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your perspective, depending if you live with me. Uh, in many of the books, including books by some that you might be familiar with, the author Brian Greene, Sean Carroll, and other philosophers of science, many of them actually tackle the, the equations and, the, and what the math shows us and all the experiments that are being done. And it's a challenging conceptual thing, but it's utterly fascinating because it's so strange. <clears throat> and then I read most recently this book by the Italian theoretical physicist, Carlo Rovelli, Helgoland, which is a small island north uh, of Germany, 
that's very isolated. And it's where one of the principal founders of, of quantum physics went and had his it had a major revelation in terms of the theory of quantum physics. When I read this book, well, first of all, this book does not have nearly as many of the particular quality, the particular descriptions of what's going on in the quantum realm. It's mostly a kind of holistic overview. The chicken and egg question for me is because I had such a deep, profound reaction to this book, I'm not quite sure whether it's simply because of this book or because I read the 11 ones first and now this one really made sense to me. So just as a, as a um, warning <laughs> of sorts, it's unclear. But anyway, this book had a profound effect on me because I finally actually had the moment where I could say, oh, I get it now, which of course means I probably don't get it, but, uh, but I felt as I finally got something. It didn't feel like a coincidence to me that in the later chapters of this book, the theor Italian theoretical physicist Carlo Novelli devotes to the Buddhist teacher Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna is in some academic scholarly circles of Buddhism considered sort of the second <laughs> most important teacher in Buddhism after the historical Buddha. Doesn't get talked a lot about because his work is of a highly systematic, logical, almost negation of ideas. And reading him is not entirely pleasant. <clears throat> so Carlo Rovelli did some, I think, really important work for us. And I'd like to read to you some short paragraphs. Actually, before I do that, I realized there's something else I wanted to share with you. I don't want to talk about the quantum physics themselves uh, in the in the very um, con there's a lot to say and a lot of it is convoluted. But I do want to share with you the holistic idea that finally made sense to me. And it goes something like this. We know we now in 2021 have all the math, have a lot of the science figured out in such a level that we've been able to create this magnificent modern world where we have radio, television, travel, space travel. I'm talking now to people all around the world by in this, from this room. It's, it's a miracle really people from a hundred years ago would be shocked out of their minds at what is happening right now. 
all of that is based on the math and the science of quantum physics. So the quantum physics works. It works 100%. We've, we've now not found uh, an instance where it doesn't add up. The proof of this happening, it, it, the, these technological advances are the proof that it works. The weird thing is that when scientists look at the building blocks of the equations that work, they, what they find scientifically via experiment does not make sense literally does not make sense. And the best analogy I thought I'd, I'd bring to you is that um, when we observe something like a photon or an atom, the smallest sort of element of matter in the simplified version, it appears to act in ways that defy the math and the logic. So that it's almost as though, in certain cases, an atom can figure out where it needs to be, even after it's already gone <laughs> to the first place it went to. Like weird, magical stuff that our human minds can't quite understand, that's what we actually see via experiment. So I'm not a theoretical or particle physicist. I don't want to. I don't want to either misspeak or 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 say something that's not technically correct. But in general, accept the fact that what we see with our own two eyes and microscope microscopes can't be figured out logistically. Something else that's called, so to speak, weird is going on. So the solution, so to speak, to this problem, the quantum physicists now say is that we, we, we'd like to think something like an atom exists. But it turns out something like an atom, the way we think of it as a little ball. I don't know if you remember your high school classes and charts and orbits. That little ball that we call an atom or a photon does not actually exist. Certainly not in the way that we think of it existing as a little ball orbiting certain orbits. That's a conceptual error that we I guess on the progress of discovery needed to make, to make sense of all the other pieces that we understood. But now we know that that is a fundamental error. If in your mind, you still think of an atom as existing as a ball floating somewhere, it is incorrect. It's doing something else entirely. <clears throat> so, Back to uh, the, the Italian theoretical physicist. Here are his words. 
This is on page 150, by the way. So up to this point in the book, he's taken the time to explain the quantum physics stuff. And now he's using Nagarjuna, the Buddhist uh, teacher, to make sense of that weirdness. And here's what he writes. The central thesis of Nagarjuna's book is simply that there is nothing that exists in itself independently from something else. I'll read that one more time. <laughs> the central thesis of Nagarjuna's book is simply that there is nothing that exists in itself independently from something else. The resonance with quantum mechanics is immediate. Obviously, Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna knew nothing and could not have imagined anything about quanta. That is not the point. The point is that philosophers offer original ways of rethinking the world and we can employ them if they turn out to be useful. The perspective offered by Nagarjuna may perhaps make it a little easier to think about the quantum world. If nothing exists in itself, everything exists only through dependence on something else, in relation to something else. The technical term used by Nagarjuna to describe the absence of independent existence is emptiness. Shunyata, things are empty, in quotes, in the sense of having no autonomous existence. They exist thanks to, as a function of, with respect to, in the perspective of something else. So here, I'll just use, go back to the quantum stuff briefly. An atom literally does not exist. There is no ball, there is no orbit. It does not exist until it interacts with something else. Only when it interacts with something else does what we think of an atom does it come into existence? If that's not knocking your socks off, <laughs> then, and it might not, because it's such a radical notion that, I mean, all the, all the theoretical physicists joke about this point, that if you think you understand what, what I just said, then you don't really, <laughs> you're not taking it seriously enough. An atom does not exist until it interacts with something else, then it begins to exist. <clears throat> if I look at a cloudy sky to take a simplistic example, I can see a castle and a dragon. Do a castle and a dragon really exist up there in the sky? Obviously not. 
The dragon and the castle emerge from the encounter between the shape of the clouds and the sensations and thoughts in my head. In themselves, they are empty entities. They do not exist. So far, so easy. But Nagarjuna also suggests that the clouds, the sky, sensations, thoughts, and my own head are equally things that arise from the encounter with other things. They are empty entities. So in some ways, it's kind of easy to say other things out there like atoms don't exist until they interact with something else. What Carlo Rovelli is asking us to consider next is the even more perhaps uncomfortable idea that we ourselves also don't exist literally in the spirit of what he's saying. Literally, we don't exist until we interact with something else. <clears throat> he spells this out in the next paragraph. And myself looking at a star do I exist? No, not even I. So who is observing the star? No one, says Nagarjuna. To see a star is a component of that set of interactions that I conventionally call myself. What articulates language does not exist. The circle of thoughts does not exist. That's Nagarjuna's quote. There is no ultimate or mysterious essence to understand. That is the true essence of our being. So, in the history of science, including this quantum stuff starting in the 1920s, more or less the mission has been to find the fundamental principle or the fundamental rule or the fundamental law. That's what scientists are always going on about. Can we discover the equation that kind of spells it all out? What quantum physics and Carlo Rovelli is telling us and Nagarjuna who figured this out way back is that there is no fundamental law. There is no fundamental substance. Even what we used to think about in high school as the atoms are the fundamental building blocks, this says that is incorrect. Atoms, quarks, protons, all of that stuff are not fundamental, not because there's something else fundamental that we haven't discovered, but because the idea of there being a fundamental thing is incorrect. There is nothing fundamental. Uh, 
that's in, in part what we read each morning. No eyes, no nose, no tongue, no mouth. If you want to locate something fundamental about yourself, your ID, your identity, whatever, you're making a mistake because it doesn't exist. At least not in that way. <clears throat> Like much philosophy and much science, Nagarjuna distinguishes between two levels. Conventional, apparent reality with, with its illusory and perspectival aspects, and ultimate reality. But in this case, the distinction takes us in an unexpected direction. The ultimate reality, the essence, is absence. It's vacuity. It does not exist. <clears throat> so I'm going to fast forward a little bit in this book. where Carlo Rovelli begins uh, to take this premise and apply it to his thinking about the nature of consciousness, which is right there in the Heart Sutra as well. Like, what is this thing we call consciousness? What is it? What is it made of? And so on page 182, Carlo Rovelli writes, but the rethinking of the world suggested by quantum physics, it seems to me, changes the terms of the question. And let me just fill in a little uh, between the missing pages. Essentially what Carlo Rovelli puts forth in this book is that quantum, what quantum physics shows us, what the math shows us, is that everything is relational. It's, so the reason no fundamental things exist, the reason the atoms don't exist, is because they only exist in relationship to some other thing, meaning everything is relational. Every last bit of reality is relational. And what I love about Apamada specifically is that our two teachers on their course to modernizing Zen and Zen teachings from the very beginning made the way we practice deeply relational. And you could find out for yourselves if you go to some other Zen places or read some other Zen teachings and then hang around Apamada for a little while, you'll notice a difference. The difference is we do more activities that are with each other. We sh yeah, we do sit by ourselves, but then also there are talks and there are activities and there are, there's a kind of, I think Flint would say, relational quality, relational 
don't know, there's a relational quality that's a main ingredient here. And so I'm like, oh, well, this is no accident. <laughs> nice. It, it, it aligns with, <laughs> with the nature of reality. Cool. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so if the world consists of relations, then no description is from outside it. The Can you repeat that, yeah. If the world consists of relations, if there's no fundamental units but only interactions, then no description of the world can be made from outside of it. So there's a deconstruction of the idea inside and outside. If, that, if there is no fundamental unit, then those terms, inside and outside, stop making sense. The descriptions of the world are, in the ultimate analysis, all from inside. They are all in the first person. Our perspective on the world, our point of view, being situated inside the world is not special. Two exclamation points in my margins for Joko Beck's book title, Nothing Special. It rests on the same logic on which quantum physics, hence all physics, is based. If we imagine the totality of things, we are imagining being outside the universe. <clears throat> looking at it from out there. But there is no outside to the totality of things. The external point of view is a point of view that does not exist. Every description of the world is from inside it. The externally observed world does not exist. What exists are only internal perspectives on the world, which are partial and reflect one another. The world is this reciprocal reflection of perspectives. Thomas Nagel, in a celebrated article, asked the question, what is it like to be a bat? He argued that this question is meaningful, but escapes natural science. The mistake here is to assume that physics is the description of things in the third person. On the contrary, the relational perspective shows that physics is always a first-person description of reality from one perspective. And I'll summarize, and then I'll end this by saying, by reading a sort of short, what feels to me like the moral of the story. And how it relates to our 
Buddhist practice, which revolves around this concept of no self or not I. But what do we mean by that? The first term of the problem, the I, actually, let me read this full paragraph. Who is the I that has the sensation of feeling, if not the integrated set of our mental processes? We have an intuition of unity when we think about ourselves, but this is justified by the integration of our body and by the ways our mental processes work of which the part we call conscious does one thing at a time. The first term of the problem, the I, is the residue of a metaphysical error. The result of the common mistake of mistaking a process for an entity. So, really all that this is saying in, in again, so many different ways is, look, science has shown us that there is no such thing as an atom. That discovery, there is no such thing as a fundamental building block, that insight allowed us to create all these technological marvels that we have today, because the math that comes out of that insight is all true. It all works. The numbers add up. So if there is no such thing as a fundamental atom, that of course go further extrapolates to there is no such thing as an I. There is no such thing as the being you consider yourself that is somehow solid enough to exist on the outside of things. Rather, everything, including atoms, including us, we come into existence merely by interaction, which he calls process. So instead of looking at life as a bunch of nouns, things, our practice invites us to think of everything as verbs, movement, changes, processes. When I was running through some of these ideas earlier this week with Flint and um, one of our senior teachers in the practice discussion group, he asked, I think, a question that the wise ones tend to do is, which is, uh, in terms of this, us trying to figure out the na nature of consciousness, like why, what's the value in us trying to do that anyway? So even if we get this right, even if we figure out the nature of consciousness and we realize there are no fundamental building blocks of anything, well, so what? Like, why are we doing this anyway? And I think that's where I want to end by saying, by bringing forth another example the most practical one I could think of. Imagine you cross paths with someone that you really don't like, or that rubs you the wrong way. Something about this person just really irritates you. 
And of course, if you're not careful and you're, and you're not remembering to practice in that moment, you're going to start creating a whole lot of narratives about how much of a dick this person is and how unpleasant and so on and so forth. And you're going to get yourself stuck into a mental picture that this person is X, no good, flawed, problematic, blah, blah, blah. Well, all of these teachings, one, remind us on the first level that this person that you're having trouble with is not solid in the way that you're thinking of them at the moment, that they are literally the cause and consequences of everything else that they interacted with in the history of their lives. They're in that moment, the karmic unfolding of a whole bunch of millions, billions, trillions of processes that now end up looking like that in that moment. So in me, there's a little bit more of a, I find it easier to be compassionate when I remember this, this verb in front of me <laughs> came about because of a whole bunch of other verbs and they're going to continue to verb verbalize their life into some other new thing that they're not just stuck as this thing you don't like so that's one level of i think why this matters it leads us more easily into like letting go of our <laughs> likes and dislikes but the other thing that i think is a little more radical and knocks me off like it's harder to sort of accept is to realize that in the moment that I'm encountering this person that I don't like, I too don't exist. And my reaction to that person is also a process. That I'm reacting the way I'm reacting because just as much as their trillions of causes and effects are showing up that way in this moment, so are my causes and effects. And together we're having this, call it unpleasant interaction, interaction if that's what it is, but that too is both temporary and non-existent <laughs> in, in that way of being solid. If you're patient enough, or if you have enough um, quality of mind to remember that none of this is solid and it's one that interaction is just one angle someone else interacting with this person that has the same qualities that you find irritating they might find truthful instructive radically honest or whatever, the same, the very same set of facts that made you irritated will cause a different reaction in someone else. Because your own processes are different. So yeah, items don't exist.
<laughs> so I'm, I'm just thinking of, of something that uh, is it would you say it's fair to say that that, that recognizing the limitations of one's own viewpoint and that it's, there's ongoing processes on both sides of what is simplified into two perspectives uh, gives gives me some a, a kind of freedom that if it's an ongoing process I might be able to change I'm not stuck in that spot forever uh, or even right now I might be able to change just by remembering a broader perspective does that seem fair? Yeah, that sounds absolutely fair. As you know, Joel, in our teachings, this concept that we, I've been talking about is usually filed under the big umbrella of emptiness. But the teachers also go on to say that emptiness is the thing which makes everything possible. Were this not the case, then we'd all be forever stuck. Then basically, we'd all be stones. Right? And then stones, the way we think of them, are not alive because stones can't change. And stones are like, there would be no, the thing we call life would not be possible unless the stuff I was talking about were true. The thing that's hard, I think, about these teachings is the radical extent to which this is all the case. <laughs> the irony. In the way the world generally seems to function, is that a sense of control, and I'm projecting here, <laughs> um, feels like more safety. And a sense of, boy, since nothing exists, there is actually no control because things are so fluid, um, instead of calm, for someone like me whose practice edges fear and control, this is a very scary truth. Right, which yeah. convenient, right, which now the conveniently enough, and I'll end, I'll end uh, my, my talk here, the poem Shin Shin Ming, uh, all the teachers realized what you're talking about, that if you take these teachings seriously, there's, um, there's a very real danger. And the, the line in the Shin Shin Ming is, don't get tangled in the world, which is, which is what I've been talking about. If there's someone you don't like, remember they're a process. They don't exist the way you think they do and neither do you. So don't get tangled in the world. Remember emptiness and don't lose yourself in emptiness. <laughs> if you, if you get, get, you lose, well, don't lose yourself in it. Because <laughs> that's a whole nother talk. So. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it from you. <laughs> uh, is there anyone uh, in the Zoom Zendo?
that uh, feels compelled to say something? Rosemary? So um, I, I thought I heard you say, and it might have been intentional or not, that we are interreacting. And I thought that was really, you know, a, a nice, you know, verb for what happens in the process. Does it? Puns don't go a long way often. <laughs> Anything else from the peanut gallery? <laughs> okay. Uh, Cersei. Um, it's resonating with me in a lot of ways, in part because I'm the one who lives with you and uh, it makes a relationship have a whole new meaning, but it's also something that um, is, is really important in my field in that we talk about there's no knowledge production at all that isn't about this kind of intersubjective quality. And so it's easy to say that about human beings interacting, but there are many, many traditional peoples who have long like kind of challenged Western notions of individualism that say everything is about this kind of, their, their senses of the way they talk about themselves is about a connective sense of subjectivity that's at the core. So that they're kind of approaching the world saying, I am the forest because I am kin to the forest and there is no separation there. So I think it's, it's interesting that this is coming out of uh, an Eastern philosophy and that we as Westerners practicing this for the most part are, are really struggling with it. And I think it partly has to do with that, you know, that being so at the center of, of how we've been taught to think. So this is really refreshing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, so I, I can't help myself, but uh, I like plugging books whenever I can. The, the, I'll, I'll show this book one more time. It really had a profound impact on me. And he writes with heart and he has a poet's gentleness and he understands the science <laughs> so it's a beautiful quality so i highly highly recommend all of us as zen practitioners that, that you that you check it out okay